Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. A great, great one today for only the second time. Uh, Heather McGee is, is with me. The first great, great one was uh, my first podcast with Heather. It was on her brilliant book, The Sum of Us, which is just out in paperback. The Sum of Us is a beautiful, powerful book about a lie and a truth. The lie is the one that the powerful, wealthy, white establishment has been telling poor and and working class white folks forever that whatever helps black people hurts white people. The better blacks do, the worse whites do. That our economy, that cultural status is all a zero-sum game. That's the lie. The truth is, and Heather's training is as an economist, the truth is that we're all in this together. As my friend Paul Wellstone used to say, we all do better when we all do better. Hence, the title of this, and I, I can't say this enough, this powerful, brilliant book, The Sum of Us, The Sum of Us. And in the paperback, in, in, in an afterward, Heather gets into critical race theory. Critical race theory is um, an academic and legal framework that a few legal scholars in the late 70s started uh, working on to explain why the civil rights victories of the 60s hadn't yielded more progress for black Americans in economic gains, in education, housing, healthcare, uh, and employment. Critical race theory recognizes that racism is more than the result of individual bias and prejudice. It is embedded in laws and uh, policies and institutions that uphold and reproduce racial inequalities. The term critical race theory has been co-opted by Republicans as a catch-all and rallying cry to silence any discussions about systemic racism, uh, ban the truthful teaching of American history, and reverse progress uh, toward social justice. And it it has become a political weapon. Glenn Youngkin uh, won the governor's race in Virginia last year by pledging to end the teaching of critical race theory in Virginia public schools, even though it has never been taught in Virginia public schools. Critical race theory is taught only in graduate school, mainly in law school. Heather and I uh, talk about how Republicans are using critical race theory. For example, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proposed, and a state Senate committee has passed this bill, that will allow parents to sue teachers who teach anything that makes their kids feel any, quote, discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of her race. Well, that's going to make it really fun to teach American history in Florida. Uh, There was uh, this long period uh, where some people uh, made other people do work for them uh, without paying them. And those uh, I'm sorry, what, Brendan? No, 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 not not like your unpaid internship at your dad's law office. That was that was more voluntary. Okay, okay. So uh, these people worked for free for about two hundred and fifty years, and uh, then there was a war about that. And after that, things got better for a while. That was that was Reconstruction, and that didn't last long. And then not so good after that. Uh, but now somewhat better. Um, is, is everybody okay? Uh, why are you crying, Ashley? Before we get to my conversation with Heather, a couple uh, other things to talk about. Gazpacho uh, tactics. 
Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene took Speaker Nancy Pelosi to task for her gazpacho tactics. Now, odd, odd thing. My grandfather, Mordecai Franken, survived Auschwitz by deploying gazpacho tactics. The SS had a Spanish chef who made great gazpacho, and Grandpa Mordecai would beg the guards, I'm allergic to tomatoes. Please don't pour gazpacho over my head. Well, sure enough, these sadists would pour vats of gazpacho over Grandpa's head, and and the Frankens uh, would lick it off him, and that's uh, how my family survived. Okay, that's not true, uh, but you know who believed that? Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, none of that is true, but this is true. The January 6th Select Committee learned a couple weeks ago that on January 6th, President Trump kept having to retape the video telling his fans to leave the Capitol riot. And here at the Al Franken Podcast, we were able to get an exclusive, the video outtakes from that afternoon. Peter, can we play those? Yep, I have them queued up. Great. So here is an Al Franken podcast exclusive outtakes from President Donald Trump's message to the insurrectionists at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. I know your pain and I know you're hurt. And I understand this was an incredibly fraudulent election. It was a lie. They stole it from us and we all know it. But you need to leave. But you shouldn't because we won. Uh, no, sir. So what I'm saying is keep going. Stay there. No, sir. Stay in there. Don't give up the fight. Uh, no, sir. You have to uh, tell them to leave. Hang in there no matter what. Phil, can we cut? Okay, Mr. President, uh, <clears throat> let's try again. And the goal is to get your people to leave. You got it? Yeah. Okay, great, sir. Uh, Take five, and action. I know your pain. I know you're hurt because you've done such an incredible job today. I mean, breaking into the Capitol, never been done. Smashing those windows, overpowering those cops, amazing. Sir. And you got all the way in there and got to Nancy Pelosi's desk took a dookie on the Capitol floor, smeared the portraits of feces. You gotta be proud. No one's ever done that. Cut! Okay, Mr. President, we really gotta get this on tape uh, soon for your own good, sir. Uh, Main thing is that you make it absolutely clear that they have to leave, okay? Yeah, yeah, got it. Okay, this is the one. Take 11 and action love you all so much so much but you've got to go home now it's time to leave on your way out nancy pelosi is still hiding in the building i think on the third floor no sir also excuse me no sir also aoc currently hiding in a closet in c-201 And the vice president is in the basement. Cut! Well, there you go. Another Al Franken podcast exclusive. And now, on to Heather McGee and a spectacular one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, 
Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. You're the best podcast I ever did. Oh. Yeah. You're the the best comic I ever heard. How about that? I don't... uh, True story. When I saw you doing your stand-up, I thought, this is the best comic I've ever heard. It was a lot of fun. You came to the New York show? I did. Oh, well, thank you. That's... Wow, at first I thought about that you couldn't now. be sincere, and then <laughs> Heather went to my uh, my show mm-hmm. in the uh, at the town hall. Yeah, you killed nice audience. That's great. Well, yeah. thank you. It's the mutual admiration society, of course. But uh, the some of us, I'm going to paraphrase what it is. Please and then do. You tell then you do it right. But uh, basically, some of us is about how the white establishment have basically try to sell the idea that the economy is a zero-sum game and that what uh, helps black people and <laughs> people of color. I'm laughing because it's... You can't it even is, get it out. Well, it's hard to get out. That what helps black people <laughs> hurts white people. And that's... Uh, but it's that's it, right? And it started, you know, during... Uh, you know, after slavery, I suppose, when there were lots of poor whites in, in the South, uh, they said, well, at least you're better off than poor black people and they're your enemy, right? That's right. That's right. That's yeah. an extension of that. That's the basis of the book. So it's called The Sum of Us because you're saying basically if what Paul Wallstone said, we all do better when we all do better. That's right. That racism ultimately costs everyone, racism in our politics and our policymaking, and that if we can reject that view, that leads to such political scapegoating and demonizing stereotyping of people of color, then we can actually reinvest together in the kinds of things that we all need, affordable health care and child care and investing in our infrastructure so we don't have bridges falling down on ourselves. And that's the kind of thing that we've shortchanged ever since government went from being the enforcer of the racial hierarchy, as it was for most of our history until the civil rights movement. And then sort of very quickly, because of the gains of the civil rights movement, white people started to see government as not being on their side. And so they turned away from it. But in so doing, they gave away the store, right? Said, we don't need a lot of government. And therefore, the corporation said, great. Great. We now, do you have any do. evidence for this theory of yours? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was. You, you sent me the uh, the paperback, which is kind of what the timing of the of the second podcast uh, with you is about, because it's coming out. Yeah, it really comes soon. out February eighth, and it's got a new afterword and a discussion guide, and it'll be cheaper because paperback. Which is yeah. great. Yeah, so black people can buy it. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and the poor white people who should be oh, they shoulder really to shoulder need with it. They <laughs> really need it. Really, I loved this book. I love this book. And like, I'll give you one of the things I just loved about this book, that the FHA the started redlining. Yeah, that the Federal Housing Authority. The, the FHA, which is that loans money for housing, right? Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. So in Boston, uh, the Spotlight investigative journalism group at the uh, Boston Globe, who uncovered the uh, pedophilia in the, the Catholic Church, did another project, and they wanted to get the net worth of black people and white people in the greater Boston area. <laughs> and Sorry, why this is funny because it's so awful. Uh, average white family, over a little over $250,000. Average black family, eight bucks. Mm-hmm. And the 250 thousand dollars i I would suspect that most of that comes from the equity in their home that's right right Mm -hmm. and if you follow 
the history of this at all. For example, after World War II, guys come back with the GI Bill. Black guys are redlined, mm-hmm. and they can't buy houses. Use the GI Bill to buy houses. On pages, I think it's 20 to 23 or something like that, there's this section where I do something I always wanted to do when I was running a think tank and studying things like the racial wealth gap. I just listed, just pretty briefly, all the free stuff that the government gave to white and soon-to-be-white, right, ethnic you know, folks. So, uh, Jews were not white at one point and then became white? Certainly not, but actually, <laughs> certainly not, but actually, uh, before World War II, Jews were redlined as well. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I grew up in uh, suburban Minneapolis and we were redlined. Yeah. But what is redlining? What is this idea? Oh, right? yes. It's this idea that the New Deal, progressive Roosevelt federal government said, we're going to do this massive investment in housing and, and make sure that people could afford to own a home and, and pay it off over time through this new thing called a mortgage, widely available. And we're going to draw maps of the whole country to tell banks where it would be a good idea and where it would be a terrible idea to lend. And they drew these lines around all of the Negro and otherwise unsundry areas and said, do not lend. If you lend here, private capital, we will not give you the federal backstop that we gave to every other loan. Same thing with all the housing subsidies to create places like Levittown said, great idea. Build these single family homes. But if you sell to a Negro family, we will not subsidize your development. Now, why, right? Did they just hate black people, Jews? No, it was this sense that, of course, Negroes would be a credit risk. Never substantiated. They didn't do the math. They didn't run the data. They just assumed it. And for three generations, black families were shut out of the mainstream mortgage market. And that is where today your average black college graduate has less wealth than the average white high school dropout. That's not about education and hard work and income, bootstraps, any of that. That's about history, where history shows up in your wallet and where explicitly racist history is still creating disadvantage today. Yeah, that's the kind of thing. That's like every fucking page of this book. (laughs) (laughs) But did I make the point? But did I make the point, Al, though, right? That, you know, so when the average Black college graduate doesn't have enough wealth to buy a home to, you know, start the business that she's studied for. Um, what does that do to our economy overall? Right. McKinsey, not some, you know, fringe grassroots group, right? McKinsey calculated the cost to the overall US GDP of that black white wealth divide as being over a trillion dollars a year. Hence, not a zero sum game. Hence, not a zero sum game. Yeah, That's right. Hence, uh, yeah, you know, and and you're talking about this legacy of redlining and stuff. Well, you know, subprime loans. This yeah. is how you and I kind of met. Right? That's right. It was over yeah. predatory lending. Most of my career, I was working on the issue of financial regulation and how Wall Street was cheating homeowners and borrowers. And we met in the aftermath of the financial crash when you were senator and on the banking committee i wasn't on the bank you weren't that's right that's right i just that's cared about you this. just cared I about, cared about it. before i became senator i yeah. got involved in uh this issue because it was just clear yeah and um, so i got it before the crash too um <laughs> i have this i feel like if all of us who saw what was coming which was not a small number of people just not a very powerful amount of people had just shorted the housing market instead of trying to stop the crash we could have you know endowed you know, reparations for generations, but instead we tried to stop it, and that's our bad. Yeah, if we'd been the guys in the big short. Mm-hmm. Damn it. <laughs> no, I think part of the reason you might have thought I was in the banking committee is because uh, while we were writing the Wall Street reform bill, I was not on the banking committee, so I wasn't there, and I went like, you know what, I, I want to write something here. And it seems to me that the credit rating agencies are the one biggest problem. And of course they were, right? Mm-hmm. And so I said, I'm going to read the big short. <laughs> and then I'm going to write it. And then after I read it, I went, okay, I'm going to write a bill where the uh, uh, credit rating agencies, they're going to be picked by the SEC. Mm-hmm. And the SEC is going to have a committee of, of people who are, you know, uh, scholars in this area and also 
people who um, are on both sides of the regulation of it, mm-hmm. and they're just going to assign the ra- rating to the, the rating agency that has the ability to do it, you know, and expertise, and also has a good track record. Because otherwise, the banks were shopping for ratings agencies. Yeah, they're giving triple. If you got a tri- gave a triple A to a financial package, the issuer of that package would go back to you for your next yeah. AAA rating. Exactly. You could pay your teacher. Yeah. Or pay your ump, maybe. Pay your referee. Yeah. And and so it my thing passed with like 69, but I like, yeah. was very bipartisan. And um, it, I don't want to go into the rest of it because it was a classic. Uh, I get, It kind of got fucked over by uh, Dodd and Frank, actually. They were never that supportive of this idea, which Demos did a lot of research on. Demos, my organization, the think tank that I used to run, did a lot of research to support your provision of the bill. We thought it was great. We were the sort of main cheerleader. And yeah, anyway. One of the things in the afterword uh, is, uh, is Biden saying basically your book, like in a speech. <laughs> It was kind of nice, wasn't it, when you saw it? I got to say, a or, friend sent or, me the link, and I, I almost, like, dropped the wine glass I had in my, in my hand. I was, I was shocked. And you stopped drinking after that, finally. <laughs> That's right. And I that said, you know it. what? I'm done. You went, I'm I've, good. I've actually accomplished something in life here. The president gets it, and now I can stop drinking. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. We've talked a lot about that problem. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> We're joking. <laughs> uh, anyway, listen, so, right? So here you've got a you know a white president who best friends with the first black president, very much owes his ascendancy in the Democratic primary to people like Jim Clyburn of South Carolina and black voters, and he had to make a case for why he, coming off of the uprising summer of 2020 and this sort of massive consciousness shift in the country. You know, he had to make a pitch to all of America about why racial equity, racial justice was not a zero sum game. It wasn't me, me, president, picking black people over everybody else. So I think, you know, there were people in the White House who, who read the sum of us before it even came out. And I think it was a, a win win for them to think about. Okay, there are economic costs to the current status quo. This racial inequality is costing us. And he actually, you know, in his very like folksy Joe Biden way, kind of explained the zero sum game really clearly and and has done it repeatedly whenever he's talked about race ever since. We've bought the view that America is a zero sum game in many cases. If you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get the job, I lose mine. Maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. We've lost sight of what President Kennedy told us when he said, a rising tide lifts all boats. And when we lift each other up, we're all lifted up. You know, and the corollary is true as well. When any one of us is held down, we're all held back. I wanted to talk to you since... You know, people can also go back and listen to, and I would encourage that, listen to our first one of these, because as I said, it was the best one I've ever done. It really, really was. And I built it that way. We repeated it. It, it was. And Thank I, you. I, I have a lot of people I've insulted who were my guests. <laughs> but no, then they listen to it and they say, oh, yeah. But so but folks should go back to that. So I wanted to talk about critical race theory. <laughs> and it seemed like th- that's a big part of your afterward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got, I had a, I had a moment. I, you know, it's, it's terrifying what's going on. Banning books, not just banning books, but banning ideas from being taught in nearly a dozen states. This is the actual law now. This divisive concepts bill. It's one of these cookie cutter kind of conservative bill factory pieces of legislation where they're literally enshrining into law protection around, you know, this concept of white fragility, that white people are very worried about talking about racism and that it just is terrifying. Literally, (laughs) these laws have a provision that says that one of the concepts that is banned from the classroom is anything that would make a student feel guilt or anguish about events or acts committed by people of their own race in the past. 
And and some of these states can't uh, someone sue about themselves. So you can get offended pretty easy, can't you? You can get offended pretty easy. In Florida and Tennessee, they're talking about a tip line, a hotline, uh, so <laughs> that, you know, any crank can say, I never did like Sounder or, you know, uh, a Raisin in the Sun or, you know, just, you know, Tony Morrison or or Mouse, the, the Holocaust graphic novel. I never did like any of that. I think it's going to be offensive to me, my kid or some white kid in the district, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't even have to be a parent. Right. And and so the point here is it's a strategy. Right. And that's what I lay out in the afterward, that it really is trying to make a zero sum argument about our story of who we are. Right. It's trying to tell white parents there's their history and there's your history and your kids should be scared of their history. Because their history is going to make them feel bad. It's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt you. It's going to make them hate you, actually, is what the, what the real subtext is here, right? It's going to make little Johnny come home and say, you know, Mom, why did you say that racist thing? You know, like that's, that's, the, that's part of what's going on here. But that's one piece of it, right? It's this zero-sum strategy. But it's also a strategy to get white parents scared away yep. from an integrated public good. Right. And even if, you know, I mean, our public schools are still quite segregated, but it's intellectually integrated, right? If they're reading multicultural authors, if they're reading about all of American history, that strategy, which has been the long term strategy of the right to say, white parents, you don't need anything public. It's not for you. It's for them. And of course, as I say throughout the book, Racism is a strategy to promote greed as it has ever been so from, you know, the creation of the idea of race to justify slavery and, and land theft. And so what is the greed motive? Well, look at who's funding these bills, who's funding these, these campaigns. It's, you know, your right wing billionaires who don't want public schools. You quote someone from the Heritage Foundation in the afterward, mm-hmm. which is he's very frank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you don't name this person. And is it because if uh, this person told you that? No. How did you get I mean. No, his name is Christopher Rufo. He's oh, a good. Heritage <laughs> Foundation can you, fellow. Can you read some of it? Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's really kind of shocking. Now, where did he say this? Who did he say this to? He actually wrote it in a memo that was then tweeted. And then it's been deleted. But, of course, the Internet remembers all. Okay. Uh, so. so he says. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper. Of course, the public, he means the white public, right? The white conservative-leaning public. Crazy. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We will have decodified the term and recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Okay, so By in that other words, white Americans. Which is what we know is like when they say critical race theory now, they don't mean actually critical race theory. They just mean anything. They mean anything (laughs) that is talking about racism or even sexism. A bunch of it has to do with sexism. I mean, the other day, you know, Governor DeSantis of of Florida said, when you hear the word equity, you should be afraid. So they're taking social and emotional learning. I don't know if you have any kids or grandkids in, you know, in elementary school. It's this whole thing about, you know, how we need to understand the way kids learn and give them sort of character skills to, it's like, It's not racialized. It's just about how to like be a human being and understand your emotions and be able to, you know, communicate with people. It's very threatening. It's very threatening. That's being sort of brushed under this sort of divisive concept thing. It's an entire front in our public schools against basically what's necessary to create a multiracial democracy, which is citizens who can think critically, who know our history. And that's the thing, Al. And and afterward, I talk about this woman named Rachel, who's a white suburban mom from Oklahoma. And she really makes the case, she made the case to me last summer, that this was really about trying to make uncritical white adults who would believe stereotypes and be manipulated. Which which she says was me. Yes, exactly. Until I figured something out. Exactly. Which I guess was about the Tulsa riot. Yeah, the the race massacre. So she grew up in, in Oklahoma. She said, I was educated in Oklahoma schools my whole life. I didn't learn about the Tulsa race massacre, the decimation, firebombing of Black Wall Street until HBO's The Watchmen. Right. So she's 
furious about that. She was outraged. She felt like she'd been robbed of some vital piece well, that, that's of her history. something about her. Because no, it says something about the, it, I mean, I think it, it says something about the public education in Oklahoma. Oh, it says a lot about the public education, but the fact that that was her reaction, which was, I was robbed right. of knowing this stuff. Yeah. That, you know, that takes someone with some character, right? That's a, yeah. Someone. She might have gotten some social and emotional learning in her school. <laughs> oh yeah, that's something we don't want: social and emotional learning. No, but she she remembers going, being in her dad's station wagon, and driving through the black neighborhood in Tulsa, and asking, as you know, a kid would when they saw what was obviously a poor neighborhood. Well, why is this neighborhood so poor? And the dad didn't have an answer. He didn't say because we bombed it out of it, right? And because when they rebuilt 20 years later, we ran a highway through it to destroy those businesses again. Oh, that's again. something you mentioned in this, which is th- this happened in in Minneapolis, uh, you know, 30, mm-hmm. uh, 94, which is the interstate uh, between Minneapolis and St. Paul. They they built it right through that's right. the Rondo area yep. and just destroy. <laughs> You know, they went right through the middle of a great neighborhood that was a very cohesive black neighborhood mm-hmm. and divided it. And, and they also, did it all over the country. It yeah. was the idea. And again, you're like, how could this happen? Right. This seems so explicitly racist and crazy. And it was federal regulators saying, well, that's the low value land. That's sort of the path of least resistance. That's the people who don't have the political power to stop it. And that destroyed you know, hundreds, in some cases, thousands of businesses. The mayor of St. Paul, Melvin Carter, mm-hmm. now, <laughs> told a story about he saw his grandmother's, I think it was grandmother's house, just burnt down for an exercise for the fire department. Oh, my God. And she wasn't paid anything. This was after, <laughs> after they divided up the neighborhood because it was so close to the interstate. Right. They just said, well, this has no value. So <laughs> they burned it down and she didn't. Yeah. I, I don't, I, by the way, people should understand, you should understand. Yeah. I hope that I laugh at the most horrible. Yes. That's, yes. That, I get it. Yes. Yeah. I know you get it, but yeah. I'm just hoping that. Yeah. The crazier it is, the more you just have to laugh. It's an, yeah, it's a release of tension. I understand. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You're so wise about everything. <laughs> but okay, so you mentioned that in here, uh, in the, in the afterwards. So, and they, they try to put uh, everything into critical race theory. So mm-hmm. if you say the systemic racism, oh, that's critical race theory. Mm-hmm. You can't teach that. That's not like critical race theory that people put that together in some law. That was a law school mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't invent the concept of systemic racism. No, I'm pretty sure the racists did. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, yeah. But they, no. they didn't name. I mean, yes, no, who no. named it? I actually don't know when the first time anyone ever said the term systemic or structural racism. But what the goal is, I mean, yeah, Rufo said it, right? He said, we want to basically empty out the meaning of this term, which sounds Critical sounds mean. Race, mm-hmm. you know, it's about race. Theory means these are just ideas. These are not facts, right? It's a it's a good boogeyman. And then we're going to shove into that everything that has made conservative or conservative-leaning white people uncomfortable about the past, frankly, like 10 years of having to talk about race a lot, having a black president, having the Black Lives Matter movement ignite you know, 10 years ago with the murder of Trayvon Martin. So what's scary about it is at a time when we needed to come together as a country, we were reminded of how we need each other, of the importance of public institutions, of healthcare, of hospitals, of government to to create the vaccines and, and just order our society at a moment when we were all being threatened. The right wing did what it does best, which is Use a massive propaganda machine, a ton of money, and a ton of organization to exploit white anxiety and white fear in a way that's not about, they don't really care about the wins in the English classroom. There's a long-term goal there in terms of, yes, it'd be great if, you know, white students weren't learning about Black history and American history that would raise their consciousness and make them better critical thinkers, make them less manipulated by propaganda. But what they're really trying to do in the near term is create chaos, create a a sense of anti-government, anti-public hysteria, which, you know, 
sort of feed their underlying ideology, which is we don't need government, the market, rich people, because the market's just rich people. What's the market? It's not a real thing, right? What is, it's not like a shopping, you know, it's not a, it's not a mall. When they say the market will decide, it's rich people will decide, right? So that's, that's what they're trying to do is, is turn more and more white now parents away from the idea of anything we could do together, of the collective, of, of the public, now that the public is integrated. And that's why it reminds me so much of the story of the drained pool. That's really the metaphor that's the heart of, of the sum of us. Explain that because it's, it's the cover of the book. Yeah. Which yeah. is a beautiful cover. Thank you. I it's really, like really a beautiful cover. It's uh, just a really beautiful rendering, drawing. Yeah, it's a painting. Painting, yeah. painting mm-hmm. of um, a kid. It looks like a white kid. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jumping into a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And there's a little black girl who's already in the pool and, you know, you can tell they're about to swim and, together. Um, so tell the history of this. So in the 1930s and 40s, the country went on this building boom of public goods, public libraries, roads, bridges, parks, schools, and swimming pools. And these were these massive, like thousand plus person grand resort style pools that were kind of a public health imperative. And they brought the community together. People fell in love. You know, it was this sort of, you know, great little mini recreational socialist vision, right? Where everybody would just come together and meet. And like most of the public goods at that time, whether we're talking about the housing subsidies and the mortgage market or social security, which was a part of this public goods ethos in the New Deal, but which excluded the two job categories that most black people belong to, domestic and agriculture work and a compromise with the South, um, or it was the GI Bill, which was race neutral on its face. But because the public benefits of housing and education went through segregated markets, many black GIs were left out. That whole paradigm of public goods from social security to the swimming pools was often whites only and segregated. And when during the civil rights movement, black families were able to finally win in the courts with their claims to say, you know what, those are our tax dollars that have been funding those public goods all along. And in the case of the swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too. Many towns and cities across the country drained their public pools rather than integrate them. They literally drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt, seeded it over with grass. And it was this idea of destroying a public good because suddenly the public included people whom white folks had been taught were not good, whom they'd been taught to disdain and distrust. And for me, that felt like a perfect metaphor. It happened all over the country. Um, not just in the quote-unquote Jim Crow South. It was sort of a perfect metaphor for what happened to a consensus, the sort of New Deal consensus that white Americans had come to rely on, even if they weren't conscious of it, that the government would do things to help build their economic security, collective bargaining laws, high minimum wage laws, trade policies that kept jobs here, um, you know, as I said, social security, housing. And that all fell apart really in the 1960s and early 1970s when white Americans went from like two thirds supporting what would now today be like a Bernie Sanders style agenda of, you know, a universal basic income and a guaranteed job for anyone who wanted one who couldn't find one. And in the very short time in the mid 1960s, the share of Americans, white Americans who believed in that kind of robust role for government like plummeted. And we know that Lyndon Johnson after he signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, would be the last person from the party of the New Deal to win the majority of white voters to this day. Once the Democrats went from the New Deal to the Civil Rights, they lost the majority of white voters. And it has been that way ever since. And of course, that's had massive ramifications for the governing consensus in our country. That's what has helped usher in the inequality era, basically white people voting for a vision of the economy that has redistributed wealth upwards and away from most working and middle-class white people, too. That brings us to voting rights, Mm -hmm. because they are suppressing the votes of black people and the people of color and students. Mm -hmm. They're they're Mm -hmm. just targeting Democrats, (laughs) you know, every which way they can. That's right. Poor people. Yep. And uh, immigrants. Yeah. You know. Yeah. One of my favorites is in Georgia, Kemp, who was Secretary of State and when he ran again for governor against Stacey Abrams, he was Secretary of State. So he did this thing with the exact match rule mm-hmm. thing. And so 
that if like a clerk had put your name down and spelled it, there's any spelling wrong or anything like that, you're kicked out. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, if your name is, you know, Al Franken, it's pretty easy not to for a clerk not to screw that up. Mm-hmm. If, uh, on the other hand, you're you're an immigrant who's registered to vote, but you have a a name that's just not familiar to to clerks with apostrophes in it and it's really long, they make they fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. so boy, it kicks out. Yeah. So they do these things that oh well, that's that's uh, do, that they're doing it to everybody. Mm-hmm. No, they aren't. They know exactly what they're doing. That's right. Or they're requiring. A photo ID, which, you know, you have to get a birth certificate and a passport together to get a driver's license, which itself, you know, creates a sort of Kafka-esque thing of if I don't have this ID to get this ID, then how can I get this ID with this ID? And then they then closed the majority of the DMVs in the black counties, right? So, you know, it's like, yes, everybody's required to have an ID. Good luck getting to a DMV if you happen to live in a black county, right? So that kind of stuff. But my point is that this moment we're in where we have under the guise of the big lie, right, of Trump saying, as he said, since he came into public life, you know, that basically brown and black people are trying to take your country and they're willing to cheat and to lie to do it, right? Barack Obama cheated and lied his way into well, he wasn't the, even American. That's right. That's, because that's, he wasn't American, right? Um, this it doesn't make sense without a racist logic that would say that, you know, people of color are not truly American. People of color are, you know, inveterate criminals, right? The big lie, the lie of voter fraud, it all has this racist zero sum logic that says that somehow this country's rising share of Americans of color are taking something away. That is rightfully the province of of people who believe themselves to be white. And that logic. Wait a minute. Who believe themselves to be white? Is this this thing about. I mean, I, well, I mean, right. The category of white expands and expands. Right. I mean, you know, Jews weren't white. Um, you know, Polish people weren't white. You know, Italians. Italians weren't white. And then the racial bargain happens and you get entree into the hallmarks of white life. You get treated by as white by the power structure and then you you are quote unquote white. But like And therefore Asians should get in Harvard at a higher <laughs> That's a whole nother topic. Oh I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't let's forget that one. <laughs> but no, but just this idea, right? And that that the big lie that that the zero sum is just so I think the central threat to our democracy right now, and there was no more clear example of that than January 6th, which I also write about in the afterword because it happened after my book was finished. And it was a, you know, near insurrection, uh, a bloody riot egged on from the White House that was based in the University of Chicago has a, a sort of a research center that focuses on sort of political violence. And they found that of all the people who were arrested in January 6th, the thing that holds them together, that tied them together was not that they were, you know, from Trump counties. They were actually, the majority were from places that Biden won. It wasn't that they were economically anxious. A whopping one out of four were business owners, which is like, you know, an amazing uh, thought. And then it was actually that geographically, they were from counties where the white population was declining precipitously. There were more and more folks of color. And the core ideology was this idea that rising numbers of so-called minorities are going to take rights away from white people. And that real patriots, real white American patriots are going to have to take up arms to defend their country from a hostile horde. Those are the stakes, right? That is what almost destroyed what many like to consider the greatest democracy in the world. Um, and now uh, Trump has said he may pardon them if he gets, if, if yeah. he wins in 24. Before, before him pardoning, you know, his minions, uh, a whole lot of terrible things would have to happen that are even crazier and more toll the death knell for American democracy as we know it, which would be Donald Trump becoming president again. Right. But uh, it's telling, it's sort of maybe that'll prevent him from being president. It's like people go, wait a minute. He has said he's going to pardon. <laughs> I don't know. I would have thought so, Al. But, you know, I, know. I mean, it was like, you know, 
bipartisan condemnation of the like you know beating of police officers to death surprisingly yeah, the, a week and after then, right. <laughs> and then but then that night they marched into the Capitol, and I'm talking about, oh, the, yeah, yeah. you know, the Sedition Caucus went right. and they they did what the mob wanted. They voted against the election. They voted to not certify the election. So it's like, and now it's become very, very hard for an elected Republican official to not sort of mealy mouth and say, well, we need to move on from January 6th. Or we've got a whole bunch of people who are saying that January 6th, people in jail are political prisoners. And that, you know, they were doing what patriots well, should do. What they're and doing the right now, what the Republicans are doing right now is putting people in position to administer elections yep. who have bought the big lie. That's right. That's right. To make well, them secretaries of state, to make them clerks. And count. I mean, this is really scary shit, really scary shit, really scary. It is. It's the combination of the, the book banning and the fascism about what we can think and the assault on democracy from that piece, right? Because that is, you do need in a multiracial democracy to have an understanding of who we are and who we are to one another as Americans. And then the assault on democracy in terms of making it harder for people to vote, eliminating a lot of the pandemic reforms that happened to make it easier for people to vote, right? People sometimes think, well, no, there hasn't been this wave of voter suppression because there was such huge turnout in 2020. Well, 2020 was actually one of the best elections in terms of election administration that we've ever had. Because people, you know, got absentee ballot registration sent to their home. It was a lot of mailing. Oh, people who didn't even ask for it got it sent to their home. Yes. Certain voted, states. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's, how awful is that? Why well, is that bad? Exactly. <laughs> well, well, then they may vote. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. You talk a little bit in, in the afterward about Build Back Better. Yeah. And oh, yeah. You talk about uh, the child tax credit. Yeah. And this this is just bugging me because... The child tax credit is great. <laughs> and, and what, 80% of Americans are for it, 70-some percent? And the the evidence, I mean, you don't have to really think this through, but I saw some um, some professor of uh, neurology or something mm-hmm. at Columbia mm-hmm. said that they did an experiment before this all happened. With giving, even less money, yeah. Yeah, well, they did two levels yep. of money, and one was exactly the same. Oddly, mm-hmm. it was 300 a month, and one was, like, much less. Mm-hmm. But the families that got 300 a month, the kids had higher brain activity. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Of course. Of course. yeah, yeah. yeah. Duh. And they're like, I don't, you know, the, the reason because they're, they're neuroscientists, right? So they're not trying to make any normative claims about why this could be. But it's like, well, maybe the parents are more stressed. Maybe they could talk to them more because they weren't sleeping in their cars. Maybe that, you know, maybe, maybe as we've always known, 
There isn't just something more magical about rich people that makes their children perform better in school and, you know, makes their health outcomes higher. It's that they have more money, right? Maybe that's the issue. And so I see the child tax credit, which helped to bring the poverty rate to the lowest level it's been on record, helped cut child poverty in half. You know, all of the pandemic aid that was in the American Rescue Plan and the Build Back Better agenda. May she, may she rise again, whether that's, you know, paid family leave or childcare or elder care, all the things that are in that bill. Universal pre-K. Universal pre-K, exactly. Um, I see those as what I called in the book solidarity dividends. And it's these gains that we can win when we have a multiracial majority that says, yeah, like we have common problems that could have common solutions. And we're not so afraid of each other that we're not willing to stand up for each other and fight for each other instead of fighting against each other. And then I really feel like the majority of this country that waded through high water in 2020 and then again in January in Georgia to put this administration and this slim majority in the power in Washington was trying to reject the politics of divide and conquer, trying to deal with the inequality that has been hurting all of us. And the agenda was far more ambitious than I was would have thought from Joe Biden, the sort of moderate centrist Democrat coming in through the election. And I think we need to celebrate a lot of the wins and the way that the paradigm has totally shifted. The type of things we're talking about right now in Washington Just giving parents money out of the simple recognition that, you know, kids who aren't hungry and parents who are a little bit less stressed, that's a public good and it's going to, you know, benefit the entire society. Things like investing in pre-K and early childhood, which is shown to pay off, you know, $5 to one, right? (laughs) Things like maybe making sure that we don't have lead pipes poisoning those same children all over the country and reinvesting in public goods like that's all really good for us the only reason not to do it is if we hate government and we hate each other i i think the lead pipe thing is in the infrastructure it's in the infrastructure but thank goodness thank god but yeah i mean and now i think that what schumer should do is just introduce these things one by one Mm. just put universal pre-k on the floor 70 percent of americans are for it you know, put childcare mm-hmm. where where you where no family would pay more than seven percent of their income today. That's exactly what it is. You know, you often twice that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Europe, I cited this on on this show a number of times. Uh, the average European country subsidizes childcare per child to fourteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> and what's it in the U.S. though? Five hundred. 500. 500. I know. It's, it's, you know. It's not like everyone gets 500. It's some people get more. <laughs> the Warren Buffett's uh, great-grandchildren don't get the 500. You know, so I didn't write about, childcare doesn't have a chapter in my book, a lot of different issues. Each chapter is a different issue. What, what do you have against kids? <laughs> my three-year-old would, would say the same thing. <laughs> Why are you making me take a nap? Beautiful what do you have child, against kids? Beautiful child. Thank you. I, she should, you know, every kid three years old is, is good looking, I'd say, you know, rare. You don't see a really, you know, a good looking three yeah. year old kid. They're so cute. So Heather shows me this picture and I go, holy mackerel, this kid's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> this boy he's just gorgeous. Which is why he gets everything he wants from his parents. It's really terrible. He looks at me with those eyes. Um, but one of the things he should want is for his mother not to, you know, work a quarter of the year to pay for his childcare. And, and, and I didn't even know this when I wrote the book. I've always been an advocate for universal childcare. I didn't know that there's a hidden racism story about why we don't have family policy, why we don't have universal child care, because Nixon Even you didn't know that. Even I didn't know this. I didn't. I got through all the research You're in the my book. You're the expert on everything. 130 pages of <laughs> notes, this. and I didn't even find this out until, um, you know, last summer when, when this was being debated, where Nixon proposed universal child care. There was a sense that this was back when Republicans thought they had to, like, offer things to people right. that people wanted um, <laughs> in order to win elections. Um and he said, you know, we can we can win the suburbs with this child care thing. This will be great. And then the pushback from his party was, this is going to be one of these integration civil rights things 
where you're going to have kids of all backgrounds and colors going to these public integrated schools. And this is sort of a front for the civil rights movement. And it was blocked. And like, I didn't even know that, but racism in our politics is one of the many reasons, like explicitly, why we don't have universal childcare and why our labor force participation rate of women has actually, of course, after growing through the women's rights movement, actually stagnated and declined since the 90s. And then, of course, it's torpedoed during the pandemic. But countries that actually have a family policy that allow both parents to work and create all those good paying jobs of of the Mm -hmm. care jobs have really high labor force participation rates for women. And that's great for the economy. Yeah. And every other country does this. Yeah. Every other country with a fraction of our wealth does it. Mm -hmm. Am I depressing you? Yeah, finally. I was (laughs) laughing at some of the worst stuff. (laughs) This one, this one was like, uh, it it wasn't so bad. It's funny. (laughs) It wasn't. And then they burned the child care centers. There you go. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Listen, you know, I'm a hopeful person. The Sum of Us is a hopeful book. I think it is. In some ways, it's like and, and it's you do simple, point stupid out, stuff, right? You, like Lewis in Maine, you, yeah. and like I cite Wilmer, Minnesota, just yep. as examples of communities that have figured it out and have really benefited by you know diversity, diversity, immigration, the the idea of you know not being scared. And what's great about Lewiston as a story of this is this, this dying mill town and so-called dying mill town in Maine that's been revitalized with the presence of new Mainers who are mostly Muslim refugees and immigrants from Africa. And and the thing that's great about that story is it's it's not kumbaya in the sense that the mayor has always been a jerk about it. Uh, multiple mayors have been kind of anti-immigrant. The governor of Maine, who also set the political tone, was, I mean, real piece of work. Paula Page was Trump before yeah. Trump was Trump, right? Um, you know, absolutely the Republican Party playbook in Maine has been during this period of time, you know, be anti-immigrant, say they come here just for the welfare, use that as an excuse to cut public investment and cut taxes on the wealthy. And, it, and yet and still at the grassroots level, white Mainers who are being marketed this idea have said, you know what? Some of them, enough of them, I'm not going to buy it. And I'm going to reinvest in this town of mine. And I'm going to see this new influx of people as the way forward in our future. And it's the town has uh, revitalized. Yeah. It's, you know, the main street, these, you know, Somali and other African families, you know, literally took the boards off the windows of the sort of boarded up vacant Main Street and opened up shops, the school, they built a new school where other, you know, semi-rural main places were, were closing their schools. They have a lot more vibrant economy um, because of this cross-racial solidarity. Um, I'm on the road again uh, in two weeks going back to Lewiston because I'm doing a podcast and the podcast is going back to some of the places that I write about in the book. And then I found a whole bunch more where I'm just telling this story mm-hmm. of how people from different backgrounds can come together to make life better for everyone. You think that's uh, really kind of necessary? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm telling you, I'm a hopeful person, but I think I was more hopeful. Before this interview? <laughs> <laughs> At 11 a.m. No. <laughs> no, I was I was definitely more hopeful when I finished the book in 2020 than I was before I set back out on the road again. Right. This last year has been hard as we've seen the deeply antisocial spirit, you know. Yeah, it's really the evil spirits there, of American it? culture just, you know, be fanned and 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 those flames start to flicker. And and and, and I I really um just it's, for your own psyche, you need to do this one. I needed to get out there and yeah. remind myself that mm-hmm. there are still Americans of all backgrounds who are willing to turn to each other. What, what's the name of the podcast going to be? The Some of Us. Oh, I see. Well, so it's easy. sort of a spinoff of the book. Um, no, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. No, I mean, I we, we, thought of some, we thought of other names, but, you know, 
Well, it's a good, you know, you're branding. <laughs> There's going to be lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, uh, okay, so when, okay, you're out, you're going to be on the road, and that's going to, well, well, you go there for a few days and then come back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go and then come back. Mm-hmm. Come back. Well, that's exciting, and uh, we'll. The podcast comes out this summer. Comes out this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you haven't made it yet. You've made some. We've made you've a been, couple episodes. Yeah, okay. we went to Memphis, Kansas City, Denver, going back to Lewiston, Albuquerque, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Going to talk to that mayor of yours. We're going to Melvin. Yeah, Melvin um, Carter. Right. Melvin Carter. Uh, uh, he's the third. His father, Melvin, too, uh, was a cop. Mm-hmm. Retired cop. And Melvin said that his friends were cops. You know, uh, white cops. A lot of them, and that he met them as a little kid, and then he met him again when he started to drive. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> <And> Melvin. <laughs> yeah, that's Melvin. You'll love Melvin. <laughs> and they've got a great story of of a whole set of neighborhoods coming together to win uh, really historic renter protections in in St. Paul. So we're going to tell a story of housing. But in, ask him in, about I ninety four and his grandma. Absolutely, I will. Yeah. It's, it's, he's great though. You'll, you'll really like Melvin. Yeah. But yeah, too bad you can't go out to Wilmer, but eh, I've done it. I've covered Wilmer. It's got a podcast on it already. That's well, I haven't done a podcast on Wilmer, but it's just great. And I told you this. I had a page from Wilmer and, uh, Muna Abdullahi. And you don't get a page. You only have 30 pages. So not every state gets a page. And they told me we have this page that we had picked. And I go down there, and there's Muna in her hajib and her page uniform. I said, you look like a Minnesotan. <laughs> and then I spoke at when, you know, she, you're there for a few months, and then you leave. And I spoke at her graduation at Wilmer, and the place just loved everybody, loved each other. Mm. And uh, then about last year, I was in the airport in Minneapolis, and these four guys were in line. We were getting burgers. And they turned around and said, you shook all our hands. I said, oh, you're from Wilmer? You know. <laughs> I go, do you know where Moon is? He, they knew where she was. They knew oh. where everybody, they knew yeah. where Tate Hovland was. He was the president <laughs> of the class, you know. <laughs> that's great. And uh, and I, they knew where the valedictorian was who was born in Peru. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> you know, that's the promise, right? Oh, that's the promise. That's the potential, right? That we would be this this real city on a hill, you know? I mean, none of us who is not an indigenous American has any more right to this place than anybody else. And we, uh, we have to remember that under it all, we're human. We want the same things out of life. And the only thing that stands in the way of us getting them is when we're fighting each other, as I said, instead of for each other. And so that's what gives me hope, young people like that. And I think we just got to get out of their way and teach them. Yeah. But I'm nervous. Oh, yeah. I'm terrified. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good note. <laughs> We're actually, when I said nervous, I meant terrified. <laughs> I, uh, boy, oh boy. Well, I think you covered terrified when you, uh, earlier <laughs> for all our reasons to be terrified. I'm resolute. Let's just put it this way. I'm resolute. Uh, all right. Great to see you again. And great to see you. Thanks for everything you're doing out here. Well, I appreciate you. You too. You too. Okay. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Click. (laughs) Well, thanks for uh, listening, everybody. My thanks to the great uh, Heather McGee. My thanks to you for listening. Uh, I also want to thank Anthony Tamanek, who uh, played Trump. Uh, That was not actual. We made that up. That was made up. Uh, He does an amazing amazing Trump, Anthony Tamanek, and I thank him for that. And of course, Leo Kotke provides uh, this beautiful music. Uh, Peter Ogburn is uh, our executive producer. And go to alfranken.com for my tour schedule. I'm back on tour, and uh, you can see where we're going. We're going to 16 uh, new, new cities. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.